Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. An old farmer went to the city one weekend and attended a church there. He came home and his wife asked him how it went. Well, the farmer said it was very, very good, but they did something different. They sang praise courses instead of hymns. Praise courses, said his wife. What are those? Well, they're okay. They're sort of like hymns, he said, but they're just a little different. Well, his wife had to know exactly how are they different. So the farmer told her this. He said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be a hymn. If on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black cows and white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, 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 corn. Then if I were to repeat the whole thing two or three times, that would be a praise course. Well, as these things go, that exact same Sunday, a new Christian from the city church attended the small town church. And he came home and his wife asked him how it went. And he said, well, it was all good, except they did something different. They sang hymns instead of praise courses. Hymns, he said, what are those? Well, he responded, those are okay. They're sort of like praise courses, only different. Well, how are they different? Well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a praise course. If on the other hand, I were to say to you, oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry, inclinest thine ear to the words of my mouth, turn thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. For the way of the animals, who can explain? There in their heads is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's son or his reign, unless from the mild tempting corn they are fenced. Yes, those cows in glad bovine, rebellious delight, have broke free their shackles, their warm pens eschewed, then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all my mild sweet corn have chewed. So to look to that bright shining day by and by, when all those foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal makes my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. And then if I were to sing all four verses and do a key change on the last verse, that would be a hymn. See, there are different kinds of music, of course, that honor God, but there's only one gospel that must be the heart of our singing, and there is only one God into whom we sing. And when we recognize this, as long as the song lines up with Scripture, the kind of music we sing stays where it belongs, a fringe issue. See, a lot of Christians today are letting 
social differences become theological agendas. Some Christians expect all Christians to be alike on issues that don't really matter. It's said that we're to wear the same clothes, we're to use the same translations of the Bible, have the same ideas about schooling our children, only shop at certain stores, only support certain political parties. But all this nonsense keeps us from being focused on the central truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. Our agendas that we come into the church with become a threat to our freedom in Christ. You see, sometimes as Christians, we are our own worst enemies. Freedom in Christ, it actually scares a lot of people because some think that we're talking about a license to sin. That's not what we're talking about. Others think that it's their job to police the actions of the people in the church because at the end of the day, judging others makes them feel a little bit better about themselves. And every time we do that, it becomes a legalistic threat to freedom in Christ. You see, very few Christians today, from my experience, very few Christians walk in freedom from the attitudes and the habits that enslave them every single day of their lives. They live their lives under a guilt, a cloud of guilt, that they look for an escape, and they do it any number of ways. Their escape, it can be any number of things. It can be drugs, it can be drinking, it can be shopping, it can be cheating on your spouse. Anything that numbs you to the pain, that distracts you from from the guilt that's in your life or tells you that it's not your fault. Or maybe you become the person that lives according to a legalistic set of rules like the Pharisees. But this is no way to live your life. It truly isn't. That's not living in grace. God intended for us to live free, to enjoy life in his son. But how? That's the question. See, the question this morning is, how do you get the courage to live free as God intended? How do we get the courage to enjoy the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ? We can learn from Paul this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2, where we find out exactly how to get this courage. He starts out by saying, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul was afraid that his ministry among the Gentiles might come to nothing because he had false teachers following him around, dogging his steps. Paul would teach the Gentiles that freedom from sin is gained simply through faith in Jesus Christ. And then legalistic Jewish men would come along right behind him and tell these new believers that they must also do all these things, including obeying the Mosaic law in order to enjoy favor with God. They would teach these Gentiles that in order to be good Christians, they must first be good Jews like they were and be circumcised. So Paul is describing for us one of his trips to Jerusalem. This was 14 years after Paul's new birth in Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul had been preaching Christ for a long time at this point. And I think the evidence of Galatians demands that this was not his trip to Jerusalem in Acts 15. I don't believe that this was the Jerusalem council. This was about three years before that, around 47 AD. And this is actually what we see in Acts 11 and Acts 12. Paul and Barnabas brought with them Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile convert to the faith. Now, Paul did this for a reason. Paul did it for a purpose. He brought Titus, a Gentile saved by faith in Christ without the right of physical circumcision. Titus was brought along as an object lesson. He was a human object lesson of what Gentile salvation looks like. Now, Paul was in his late 40s by this point, or early 50s. You know, when many in our culture, so many in our culture, start winding down in their lives and start looking ahead to retirement, Paul was just gearing up for his greatest work. This seasoned saint was ready to stand against the satanic onslaught against the gospel of Christ. But why did Paul go to Jerusalem? That's the question here. Well, verse 2, I'm not going to lie to you, it's a little wordy. It is. It's a little bit wordy in the text. But notice how it starts out. It says, and I went up by revelation. You see, God instructed Paul to go. That's ultimately why he went. But the point is, Paul wasn't forced to go. You see, the other apostles down in Jerusalem weren't calling him back to Jerusalem just to correct him and correct his gospel. God wanted Paul there. Now, let me show you what I think this is a reference to. Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch by this point. And then we read over in Acts chapter 11. Look at what the text says. It says, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Paul communicated the gospel of Christ that he was preaching to the Gentiles. But those of reputation, it tells us back in Galatians, the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, he spoke privately to, lest by any means, he says, I might run or had run in vain. Now, at this point in the text, people see those words and they like to assume that this means that Paul was concerned that the apostles in Jerusalem would hear what Paul was preaching and disapprove. I would say that this cannot be. It stands in the way of everything that Paul had just told the Galatians in chapter 1. He had already said back in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, that he was certain he spoke the true gospel because he had received it directly from Christ. He had already said back in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 that he did not need the approval of the other apostles. So what is the fear here? What is the concern? Paul was out there in the Gentile world preaching Christ with legalistic Jewish men following him from town to town, undermining the message of grace. And I honestly think the fear at this point was that if Paul didn't circle back and contact the apostles in Jerusalem, he might go out there and look like a lone ranger. I think the critics might have pointed to the fact that Paul was never in contact with the apostles in Jerusalem and insinuate that this was because there was some sort of problem, some sort of trouble between Paul and the rest of the apostles. 
Now, Paul just simply didn't want legalistic men coming along, making up lies, telling everyone that the reason Paul never went to Jerusalem was because Paul was at odds with the other apostles over the content of the gospel of Christ. In other words, let me say it like this. Paul went to Jerusalem to protect himself, and Paul went to Jerusalem to protect the gospel message. Otherwise, all of his labor for Christ could have been undermined by a handful of legalistic men. Paul met in private, it says, with the leaders of Jerusalem. Because Paul was a wanted man, his life was in danger in Jerusalem. But to bring this uncircumcised Gentile believer by the name of Titus right to where the church began, this would show great unity between Jew and Gentile. I've personally never been a fan of treadmills. Some people here like them, and that's your prerogative. But for a lot of people in the church today, I would say that their walk with God feels like running on a treadmill. You see, people are working hard but getting nowhere in their faith. And I hope this morning that that is not you. But that's a good image to describe it if you consider the history of where these stupid, stupid machines came from. In Victorian England, treadmills weren't found in air-conditioned health clubs that you paid for. They were found in prisons. They were called back in that day treadwheels. That's why it feels like you're being tortured when you're on them. They were called treadwheels and they were used as a form of punishment. Some were used to grind wheat or to move water or different things, but others were only used strictly for punishment. Prisoners were punished by spending the bulk of their day walking up this inclined plane, knowing that all their hard labor was for nothing. And the only hope was that at some day in the future, the prisoner would have supposedly paid his debt to society and then be set free. You see, the prisoner, he couldn't even look back at his hard work, his labor at the end of the day and know that at least he had been productive. Paul's concern was for the Christians. See, he wanted to make sure that they knew that as you struggle with sin in your life, we must remember that Christ has set us free. We're no longer chained to that treadmill. We're no longer chained to sin, foolishly attempting to sit there and go round and round and around and earn favor with God because you can't. You can't. Christ has paid the ransom, demanded for your release from sin, and now you're walking in the freedom that has been given to his people. Paul didn't want God's people going back to the treadmill, but that is exactly what we do. We go back to works, finding ourselves walking on a meaningless treadmill, giving the illusion of motion, but taking us absolutely nowhere. Verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. This is only one of two spots in the whole entire New Testament that Paul was contributing to where he actually labeled someone a false brother, false brethren. The point is, Gentiles don't have to become good Jews in order to be Christians. I think we can see that in the text. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep some legalistic standard in order to try to earn favor with God. All they have to do is trust Christ. 
Now, if Titus was a Gentile Christian and he was circumcised, that would have caused a huge problem at this point. It would have sent a message to all the other Gentile Christians out there that you must follow all the Jewish laws in order to become a Christian. This would be to reject the gospel of grace. This would be a return back to works. But there were some false brothers who came in to sabotage Paul's ministry and turn his converts into slaves of their legalistic system of works. You see, it says that these men slipped into this meeting. They weren't supposed to be there because the church of Jesus Christ is for believers and the church needs to learn that lesson. These men didn't come in with an open mind wanting to learn about salvation. They came in with an agenda. These false brothers strongly insisted that Titus be circumcised. But the leadership of the church, they stood strong. They came together and they stood strong for the truth of the gospel. And I look at this and I wonder as a church, I wonder if we would have made that stand. I wonder if we consider God's grace to be that important. The church united to stand against the legalists of the day, not giving ground for even a moment. And I think that is exactly what we must do as a church if we're going to continue in our freedom in Christ. Otherwise, all that we're doing is just jumping back onto that treadmill of works. You see, if this church, if this church, Pioneer Baptist Church, is going to honor God, then there must be unity around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope you hear that. We must agree that faith in Christ really is enough for people to be accepted by God. And then when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to treat them the same way that God treats believers, redeemed by faith and welcome here. You know, our culture has such a different mindset, doesn't it? Our culture tells people that in order to be accepted today, you got to have a lot of followers on social media. Or in order to be accepted, you have to be thin, you have to be good, you have to be smart, you have to be great looking. But the Bible doesn't say that stuff. The Bible stands on opposite ground. And it tells us in Romans that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And again, in Romans 4, it says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Hear that message. God justifies the ungodly. He declares them righteous when they trust Christ, not when they do enough good work. That is the truth that is going to set us free. Acceptance with God comes with simple, simple faith in Jesus Christ. I also think verse 4 is a strong warning to the church today, a warning that a lot of people don't want to hear, that not every person who walks through those doors is our friend. You see, there's some that will come in passing themselves off as Christians, but coming in with a completely different purpose. And here in Galatians, it was to spy out their liberty, to bring the Christians back into bondage. But we know that people will come in with different doctrines, different beliefs. People will come in with their own set of goals, and it may or may not be honoring to Jesus Christ. Always remember the words of Paul in Acts 20 when he warned the elders of the church in Ephesus. He said, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, do you catch that? From among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
Paul called them false brethren back in Galatians chapter 2. Because anyone that adds works to the message of faith is showing that they don't understand the gospel message. Now, let me also just say that not everyone who messes up the gospel is an unbeliever. (laughs) Because, hey, we as Christians, we do this all the time. But Paul would not recognize these men here in Galatians as Christians. And I'm certain of this. I'm certain that Paul, he had his reasons. Paul said that there are men out there trying to take away your liberty in Christ. I hope you are concerned about that. There's men out there trying to put you back into bondage. Men who had infiltrated the ranks of the church in order to destroy the doctrine of grace from the inside out. But Paul didn't blink. That's the beauty of Paul. He didn't back down. He didn't blink. He didn't pause. He didn't give in for even a second, even an hour, because the truth of the gospel was at stake. And Paul saw himself as one entrusted to protect a priceless treasure, the message of God's amazing grace. You see, there is a constant threat all around us today, isn't there? Because men are always, always trying to earn favor with God, even though we are powerless to save ourselves. But that is where we as believers need to be partners in God's grace. That's where we need to work together to share the good news of Jesus Christ, which is what we see next in our text, starting in verse 6. Paul says, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Now, Paul is at this point in the text pointing to the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 9 is going to tell us that this was James and this was Peter and this was John. These pillars of the church were well known, but they didn't add a single thing to Paul's message of grace. They didn't understand the gospel any better than him. Here's what Paul is saying. Listen carefully. He's saying other men may be able to preach the gospel, preach it better than him, but no man can preach a better gospel. Why can he say that? Because the gospel that Paul preached came directly from Jesus Christ. And if we're all preaching the gospel, it should be the same message. Paul wasn't attacking the other apostles where he says they seem to be something. It's just that the legalists were celebrating the other apostles. They were making so much about them, the apostles in Jerusalem, while these legalists were attacking Paul. So Peter and John, they were very close to Jesus during his ministry. James was the half-brother of the Lord and leading the church at this point in Jerusalem. Peter was the dominant apostle for a time referred to as Cephas when we get to verse 9, his Aramaic name. See, in the early days of the church, Peter was the one, you remember from Acts, he was the one that preached the first sermon to the Jews after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. John would go on to write five books of the New Testament. Peter would write two. James would write one. These men seemed to be pillars. These men had all seen the resurrected Christ. But Paul didn't play favorites. That's the beauty of this. Because Paul knew that these men were just as dependent on the grace of God as himself. Paul was telling them, it's not about the messenger, it's about Christ and the gospel. 
The legalists, they saw James, Peter, and John as the real apostles, but they saw Paul as an imposter. You see, the, the legalists were expecting the hammer to fall on Paul when he went down the road to Jerusalem. Titus was standing there in their midst, uncircumcised, but Titus was accepted as a brother in Christ. And these pillars of the church had nothing to add to Paul's message. Why? Because they saw Paul as an equal and they went one step further. Pick it up again with verse 7. It says, But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Let's put this all back into the first century context. The right hand of fellowship was significant. You know, we shake hands all the time today, and it doesn't really mean much. But when the apostles extended the right hand of fellowship, they were doing something. They were saying something. This was a statement. They were saying, we are forming a partnership. We're agreeing to work together for a common goal. They trusted each other. Here in the text, they agreed to proclaim and live out the gospel of Christ because they were making it known that there are not two different gospels. There is one gospel message for both Jew and Gentile. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. It was not a competition. God was working effectively in Peter to the Jews. God was working effectively in Paul to the Gentiles. It showed that Paul had, in fact, been commissioned by God to be an apostle. God was working. Paul's salvation in service to Christ and manifested the grace of God at work. Peter, James, and John told Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to press on, keep going for Jesus Christ. And there was one more thing, verse 10. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Let's put it into context. The poor in the New Testament are typically a reference to the poor among the people of faith. Not people who are poor because they don't work. Not people who are poor because they can't live within their means. That's a problem today. It's poor widows, orphans, those suffering persecution. And in this case, it was famine. And this is what we saw just now in Acts 11, where the church had sent relief to the poor brethren living in Judea. You remember that Jerusalem was a very overcrowded city filled with poor people. And it wasn't just the famine of Acts 11, because from the year 30 AD all the way up to 50 AD, there was waves of famines to hit the land one after another. And food just became like it is out in the villages, unaffordable. And in Judea, if you became a convert to Christ, quite often your Hebrew family would disown you. Many believers were already living in poverty. Paul was there with a gift from the church in Antioch. Saul of Tarsus was the one as a Pharisee who had made some of these people orphans and widows. He was the one who had hunted down the people of faith in Judea. Sure, he did it in unbelief, but he made some of those people poor by his persecution. 
And when families lost their husbands and fathers, it became very difficult to provide. And I have no doubt that he didn't need James, Peter, or John to remind him that these dear, dear believers, they needed help. And as Paul would tell the Galatians in chapter 6, he would say this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Jews and Gentiles working together for the gospel of Christ. Jews and Gentiles working together for the benefit of the body of Christ. It was May of 1998, a warm spring evening, and a young man by the name of Christopher Searcy was just out playing basketball, minding his own business, playing basketball with a few friends. They were only half a block from Ravenwood Hospital, and three teenage Latino gang members were looking for someone that was African-American, someone that was black to kill. Christopher was just standing there, and he was black. And so even though he was just minding his own business and playing basketball, they walked up to him and then they shot him in the abdomen. Now what happened next was a little hard to believe. Remember that they were only half a block, half a block from the hospital. His friend helped him get to the hospital as fast as he could. But Christopher collapsed just 30 feet shy of the hospital. So his friend, he ran into the hospital as quick as he could to get help. And the emergency room personnel refused to go outside to assist the dying boy because they had a policy that only allows them to help those who are inside the hospital. And so his friend called the police to get help for Christopher. But when the officers arrived on the scene, they called for an ambulance, refusing to carry the boy inside again citing policy, unconscious, and on the ground bleeding, Christopher just got weaker and weaker and weaker, waiting for help. After several minutes, when the ambulance hadn't arrived, and you would think it could get there just 30 feet short of the hospital, but when it had not arrived, the police finally gave in and helped out and took Christopher into the emergency room. But by then, it was too late. Nothing could be done to save his life. I would submit to you this morning that this is the spirit of a legalist. They have no problem of letting rules stand in the way of life. They have no problem letting rules stand in the way of God's grace. You see, a legalist that infiltrates the church may never admit it, but they believe that the supreme force behind salvation is man. If you look right, if you speak right, and belong to the right segment of the right group of people, then and only then will you be saved. For the legalist, most of the responsibility does not lie with God. It's said to be with us. It's based on pride. You see, the legalist is always a phony. It's always a sham. The outside looks good. The outside looks polished. It's an outward focus, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk a big game. But look closely and listen carefully because something's always missing. Joy. It's joy. The legalist cannot live in the joy of Jesus Christ. It's impossible because in its place is fear, arrogance, and failure. Fear is there because it's a fear that they won't do enough to earn favor with God. Arrogance is there to think that you can possibly do enough to earn favor with God. And failure is there because they live with the dread of making a mistake because perfection is not going to be found in any of us until our bodies are glorified like Jesus Christ. The legalistic mindset, it grips these people. 
And I'll tell you what, that legalism, it is a slow, slow torture. It has just enough religion to keep you hooked, to want you to go deeper in it. But it can't give life and it can't get you closer to God. It's impossible. So you starve spiritually. And those that lead you down this path, they don't know God any better than you. So you starve together with them. Your spiritual diet becomes rules and standards, just bland, predictable religion of men. But if you contrast this with God's grace, if you contrast this with faith, you learn that grace is not focused on rules. It's focused on Jesus Christ, on Christ living in us, on being reconciled to the Father, and on the believer living under the power of the Holy Spirit according to God's word. Grace is based on what God has done for us. Grace is based on our position, our identity in Jesus Christ, and it doesn't cost us anything. It is the riches in Christ that have been given to us. You see, in grace, you find forgiveness. You find joy, the peace of Christ, and you find eternal life. So believer, hold on to it. Hold on to God's grace and defend it. Live for it. Defend God's grace. Stand for it. Because I'll tell you what, most of the fallen creation out there stands against it. And then pray. Pray for Christ to continue to give us the strength each day and every day to live for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.